if you have heavy carbon emitting plants, what are you going to do with those? Unless you turn them into lower emission plants, you may have to get rid of them. So there's going to be costs associated with it. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Asher Matthew. And I know I have been absent from this podcast for a bit, so I'm sorry, but things have been pretty busy in life, both personally and professionally. And, uh, you know, we've done a fantastic job of merging all these companies into demand base. And, uh, and now we're ready to serve customers with all types of go-to-market strategies and go-to-market data and go-to-market apps. But it's awesome to be back on the show. And today I'm really excited to invite Sinem onto the show to talk a little bit about green growth. And Sinem, welcome to the show. And tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Asher. And I do love the fact that I'm one of your comeback guests. So this is great. Well, hello, everybody. Sinem Hostetter. I'm a partner from our Chicago office at McKinsey & Company. I primarily focus on commercial excellence and go-to-market strategies for B2B companies. That could be anything from agriculture and chemical space to med tech to food ingredients, anything in between. I spend a lot of my time helping clients think through growth strategies. And especially with that in mind, with the most recent trends, we're seeing a huge shift towards green growth and sustainable growth. So I've focused a lot of my efforts um, on this piece most recently. I would say based out of Chicago, I have a four-year-old sassy daughter and nice. you seem pretty busy. We're very similar. So my, my daughter is six and, uh, you know, uh, we were uh, before we kicked the show off. Sinem and I were talking a little bit. We we're actually both immigrants into this country, and 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 self-made people. And for those of us, I think the audience for like this podcast now is about twelve thousand people or so, uh, mostly executives still. But there's lots and lots and lots of stories of amazing people that I've met through this podcast who've actually like built themselves. And even they were even though they were born in the states, they still had to like make themselves. And so super appreciative about of the resources and the opportunities this country kind of gives to you. But let's dive into the topic, right? So tell us a little bit about like green growth and maybe talk a little bit about uh, on efficient growth because like where we are in the, in the macro trends, right? Like everybody's focusing on value and, uh, um, and, and that means people start to grow, but the mindset, uh, mindset changes, right? And so tell us both of those things and then tell us also a little bit about like why you chose green growth to the kind of like major end. That sounds great. Well, actually, I do want to first talk a little bit about kind of the strategic courage in, a, in an age of volatility, right? If you actually look at our some of our McKinsey.com articles, you'll run into a brand new article that Bob um, has recently launched. It is called Strategic Courage in an Age of Volatility. And I think it summarizes very much what we're going through right now. That's pushing a little bit for efficiency, but also creating opportunities for growth, Right. We are in an environment that requires business leaders to kind of hone their edge in terms of commitment, execution, insights. And there's shocks on top of shocks that are accelerating some of these longstanding trends, such as digitization and sustainability. So for me, coming from a growth practice, helping clients think through how do you grow your customer base? How do you serve your customers better? It is the most important thing to make sure you're in line, your priorities are in line with what your customers' priorities are. So when you were to go out and talk to a lot of the consumers, even if I do B2B, there is a B2B to C chain. You talk to consumers and sustainability is one of the biggest concerns that are out there. 
right? Obviously, there's additional shocks that people need to think through from inflation, the pandemic-related supply chain disruptions, etc. So efficiency is still there. But what we're seeing is um, the executives who are both on the offensive, so making sure that they're covering their bases, and also being defensive and taking care of any issues that they might run into, but also taking advantage of the volatility to identify new opportunities. Those are the ones that are probably going to go ahead and get out of this volatile volatile environment in a a leading manner. So that's a little bit of why I think efficiency and growth kind of can go hand in hand. If we go to your second question about why I like the green growth, if you think about what I do, I help clients think through their sales uh, execution. I help clients think through how do you sell more effectively? How do you sell more efficiently? And if I think about the product portfolio that we need to curate for a more sustainable world, it needs to go through green products. And selling green products is different than selling a typical, you know, normal product that everybody's used to. So I think there's a whole new world to unlock there. And I find it incredibly energizing. And so walk us through what a green growth, let's call it go-to-market strategy looks like, right? Because like for us, right, go-to-market is sales, marketing, customer success, mm-hmm. and partnerships, right? Those are basically the four components, right? And then some people like product-led, some people are sales-led, some people are community-led, you know, like all these things, right? But like in the green growth environment, like, again, I don't know, so I'm assuming a lot of the listeners don't know, and like by virtue of you teaching me, a lot of other people learn too. So unpack that a little bit. Of course. And it wouldn't be McKinsey if we didn't have a framework for this, right? So we do have a six-part framework, of course. I would say it starts with customer and portfolio strategy. So you need to think about um, your customers and not just your immediate customers, but your customers' customers, right? You may be a chemical manufacturer selling to someone like PNG, but PNG needs to think about what the consumer wants. So you need to identify in your customer value chain, what are the products that customers care about that needs to go more green, more net, you know, carbon efficient, zero carbon footprint type product. So you need to identify what is the customer demand first. And then if once you identify that customer priority and customer um, demand, you take a look at your portfolio and get a sense of, do I actually have the products or do I have gaps? Right. If you actually have gaps, then it's time for you to think through a new product service line, new business model, and what we call going to this green business building um, venture. That could include new ecosystem of partners, identifying new ways to serve your customers. So that's for brand new products to fill in the gap that the customers are looking for that you don't have. Let's say you identify your customer and portfolio strategy. You have the products, but your customers don't really know that you do and they don't understand the value proposition. Yep. Then you get, go into the green go-to-market, which includes you know, how do you actually sell that product? Do you need that normal sales team? Do you actually need to bring a technical rep? Do you need to bring somebody that knows carbon accounting? How do you create the value proposition? How do you actually educate the customers that what you're bringing to bear is more effective than what they could be getting from another manufacturer? Then you get into the pricing. Is there a premium element to it? Or is there, you know, at this point, premiums gone, but you still need to make sure you're covering your cost. There's a branding part of it. And then finally, the capabilities. So the green, what we call green capabilities goes beyond just the sales team and the pricing team, but somebody that needs to know the regulatory piece as well. 
right? So it's a little bit more of a cross-functional set of capabilities that you want to build to make sure you have a sustainable business model. And, and this is great. So I want to take uh, steps to just unpack a couple of things, right? One is, is you said your product portfolio and your customer portfolio need to connect, right? And then on your product portfolio, you need to have products that are carbon efficient or that have a low carbon footprint, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why is that important, right? And I, I'm just, I know I'm asking these questions and, and you're probably like, hey, this is like a fourth grader question, but like, I just want to make sure that we do, we leave people with like information. So when they walk away from this podcast, they're like, okay, I got why this is important. Mm -hmm. At this point, if you think about it, a lot of organizations have made science-based targets to reduce their emissions, right? That emission reduction is going to happen both from a supply chain perspective, right? Let's say you're using EV trucks, you're using smart warehousing, you're using you know, uh, better logistics, so you're removing unnecessary trips. So there's a decarbonization of your entire supply chain to begin with and your own operations. But then if you think about from a consumer perspective, if I'm buying a bottle of shampoo, I want to make sure that I'm buying the most environmentally friendly product that's out there. So, and if you think about everything that goes into that bottle of shampoo, there's the packaging, there's the logistics, there's the raw materials. So you actually need to think through each one of those elements and how do you drive a greener option out there? So the end product that the consumer is looking for is actually either carbon uh, efficient or, you know, net zero. Yep. And so I guess the way I take that is nobody has unlimited resources, right? There's no VC funding to generate more earthly resources, right? So we have to be responsible as, uh, as, as citizens to make sure that the things that we do consume can be recycled and they are, are uh, and then when we manufacture things, um, they are done in the most, obviously in the least, environmentally harmful way, right? Exactly. And the measure of that is a carbon footprint, right? Exactly. Maybe the, the unit measure of that is a carbon footprint, right? Uh, and I'll, I'll give a, a plug to my friend, Chris Avila, because like, he is literally like the biggest, like maybe environmental freak is probably the right word, but like he like will not stop talking my ear off on this. So like it's unusual for like a B two B go to market like SaaS person to be talk to have some of this information. But thank you to, because of him, I've been able to like pick up on some of these things. But like yeah, so the unit measure of efficiency of uh, of maybe environmental efficiency is a, is carbon footprint uh, is a car car carbon footprint basically, right? And exactly. So, and so, so, so tell us how to think about that. So there's um, two parts to it, right? Like if I go back to the shampoo example or any consumer product part of it, there is going to be from a B2B player perspective, you may be any part of the value chain. You may be part of the logistics that's helping with the distribution. You may be part of the raw material manufacturing. You may be part of the packaging. So as you're buying that one product, imagine all the suppliers that are actually in that mix. So yep. what becomes important then is, A, you need to move fast and become one of the first ones that can actually provide the array of uh, raw material options that can create that greener product. Because if not, you may be at risk of losing a customer, right? If the consumers are demanding and there's so much pressure, also regulatory pressure out there to start switching into um, lower carbon emissions, everybody's looking for that supply. And if you don't have that supply or if you don't have a way to get that, you may be disintermediated. So there's yep. a pressure in terms of B2B businesses to figure out how do you 
kind of support your end customers to build that product portfolio. Yep. And as you said, and too, there is limited resources, right? So oh. whoever kind of gets the first uh, access will have the more valuable player mode. And, and to, to, to talk about this topic, maybe at a, a much more macro level, right? Um, uh, uh, and this is when, when I say this, it's going to make me sound completely uneducated about this. But like the, the it feels like that countries have like these carbon credits, right? That they mm-hmm. kind of like an exchange right and so like if people want to learn more about like how the how the carbon exchange between countries uh, is done and what is the unified body that like manages this like could you want to t- tell us a little bit about that so there it is interesting right there's multiple different ways to actually go about that i would say carbon credits is one piece the carbon sequestration is another piece but we're getting to a point where buying carbon credits is no longer sufficient right just because you bought a shampoo and somebody put like, you know, a thousand trees somewhere is no longer going to be enough. So it's almost trying, that's the offsetting part of it. So you're trying to make sure that the initial process is as, um, you know, low emission as possible. That's one piece. Then yes, there's the offsetting part of it, but then there's a whole new set of technology that's being developed that's around carbon capture. That's literally taking the carbon away from the atmosphere which is a little bit more of the newer technology that everybody's looking into. So I think there's all three parts that you might want to play in. Not one is the pure answer, right? So a lot of organizations are thinking through how to play across all three. But at the end of the day, I think as the consumers are getting more educated, they do want to understand where everything is coming from, right? And what's the carbon footprint of a product that they're buying? And there's obviously each country, I would say, has their own regulatory teams and there's all sorts of legal implications around what you need to actually report, which again goes back to why you need to build a cross-functional capability around it. And and is there like a global organization that actually manages the let's call it carbon exchange? That's a good question. I run into a lot of different organizations. I don't know if there's like one mega thing, right? But there's different groups that are coming together within each industry to make sure the right level of exchange happens, right? But one point that links to that is you're seeing new ecosystems being developed, right? You're going to see companies collaborating with their competitors, companies collaborating with government, companies collaborating with universities to actually come up with um, new scientific methods to produce uh, products. So you're seeing new ecosystems of partners that are coming together. And so you you brought up a really good point there. Why do boards and like executive management, like why should they care about this, right? Because like, I, I know they probably care about uh, gross margin, net income, like earnings per share, you know, free cash flow, blah, blah, all these things, right? But like nothing on a PNL statement says like carbon credits or any, any of this stuff, right? And so, uh, so why, do they, why, do, why should they care about this stuff? So I would say there's three parts to it, right? One is well, probably four parts. To it. One is there is the regulatory part where you actually need to start tracking these things and you need to um, the SEC regulations. Number two is there is a downside risk, right? If you have heavy carbon emitting plants, what are you going to do with those? Unless you turn them into lower emission plants, you may have to get rid of them. So there's going to be costs associated with it. There is also your cost of capital might go up if you're not actually catching up with it, and you may actually lose some customers. 
So there's some downside risk you need to manage. On top of it, there's some growth pools that you may not be able to get into if you're not acting. And those growth value pools being, hey, are you going to be a part of the advanced recycling process? Are you now capturing the newer customers that are looking for purely green products? Uh, so there's an element of how can you capture the new value pools and create the new business products uh, and new business models? And then fourthly, there's a valuation story, right? I think all of that combined is going to lead to a valuation story that's relatively positive for organizations that are able to manage their downside as well as think through in a kind of offensive approach to gain some more value out of this. Yeah. Oh, this is super interesting because I feel like companies say that they're very eco-friendly, right? And then, uh, and then it's almost always due to some external pressure, right? And then they have to transition into eco-friendly in, uh, processes, right? And so if somebody was not following a green growth process, then how much time does it take to like transition into a green growth environment? It's not an easy process, right? So you're thinking about, if you think about different sizes of organizations, let's say you actually are a large organization. I'll give you one example. I know out there publicly, you can probably look it up, but one chemicals manufacturer built a mattress recycling process that's super effective, but it took up, up to four years to actually develop it. We're at a point where things are moving faster, right? If you're a smaller, agile startup that's purely focused on advanced recycling and you're making faster decisions, you may be able to create a business model relatively fast within a you know six months to a year, but then scaling it is going to take time. If you're a larger organization, you may need to think about, hey, I can prove my MVP version of a product model or a new business model, but how do I actually have the capabilities? How do I hire the skill sets? That's when you're starting to see a lot of larger corporations working with startups to kind of build this new capability or being part of ecosystems in all honesty. Yeah. And, and because I don't see a chief green officer, you know, or something like that out there. There's so- chief sustainability officers. They're coming up. Yeah. <laughs> I would say chief sustainability officers are definitely up there. Even cities have them. I think Miami was one of the first ones to have one. Well, cities, I totally understand, but like B2B companies, like I've not seen like a, like, you know, you have a chief growth officer, but you don't have a chief green officer yet. So So. there is, yeah, there's definitely some companies that will have the chief sustainability officers. I think I'm seeing a lot more of the VP of sustainable products, you know, VP of sustainability Uh, groups that are focused on ESG. The one thing that we always say, though, sustainability needs to be a CEO topic, right? It needs to be a CEO topic led through the businesses. Got it. But so, okay, so th- this is interesting, right? Because you're McKinsey, you deal with CEOs all the time, right? And like every group says this should be a CEO imperative, right? And like the CEO is like fantastic, you know? I, but one I'm more topic. Be- you know, and like, 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 it's like fantastic. I'll take like 21 direct reports and they like get nothing done. And then boards get mad at CEOs because they're so inward focused that they're not actually working on the business. They're working in the business. Right. And so, so like, like, and this may be slightly off topic, but like, you know, you said something that I'm like, okay, like the, the partnerships people in the world want the, their, their stuff to go to the CEO. You want your dreams initially to go to the CEO, right? There's like a few special interest groups that want to get a CEO, right? And the CEO is like, guys, I can build the company. I can build the product. I can build the customers. That's 
that's the framework, right? Like yeah. for to make to to speak McKinsey language, right? So like like how does a CEO prioritize this stuff? Uh, that's a good question, right? I would say I'll stick with the first the ESG part of it or sustainability part of it. The way we view this as a um, kind of a CEO topic is that it needs to be customer back, right? So you need to actually go back to what the customers are looking for, what the customer willingness to pay is. So the sustainability program that you're creating, there's an element of this, at least from a growth perspective, not from an SLE decarbonizing supply chain perspective, but from a sustainable growth perspective, there's a very much a customer priority. So your CEO is always going to think about creating that customer growth. So that's one piece that you want to link it directly to, right? I would say sustainable initiatives that are trying to drive growth without customer demand likely won't be as successful. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it is from a talent perspective, it will be important to actually have an organization that can attract the right talent, making sure that they're walking the walk, right? Um, when it comes to their sustainability goals. If you think about Gen Z, we actually did a consumer research on this one. When they're purchasing something, they're all much focused on ethics and where it comes from, right? Again, purchasing and working is not necessarily the same thing, but you can imagine that linkage of the next generation of employees and what type of employer they're looking for. So to attract the right talent too, you need to make sure you have a pretty clear ESG strategy. And I think when you combine the regulatory prioritization, the customer growth perspective and talent perspective, those usually tend to be to you, what you said, t- they tend to be CEO priority anyways, right? Correct. Correct. So. so, I mean, well, I guess looking at your uh, understanding that answer, to me, like if I'm CEO, I'm like, okay, fantastic. Put on an HR, you know, and then you have a CHRO and then one pillar is like DEI and the other one is ESG. And then the third one is like all total rewards and stuff like that. And then you kind of build this thing out, right? Because that's what my gut tells me where I would find a lot of these initiatives. I would say DEI will likely be under HR, right? Which makes perfect sense. Um, Sustainable products should likely live in the business. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about customers. Okay. So you're, you're effectively your CRO should actually have sustainability as a measure if you are a green growth go-to-market company. Exactly. Okay. Now, now I have a lot more to talk to my CRO friends and be like, hey, <laughs> who's going green? You mean like we're juicing? No, no, no. Who's going green? <laughs> <laughs> How are you actually driving growth from this? Correct. Exactly. To your point, everybody's focused on decarbonizing their supply chain, right? Everybody's very much focused on that one. Yep. Yep. But I do think there is that's covering your bases. If you actually yes. want to capture this moment, there is an element of how do you drive growth from it. Yep, yep. And also, like, like you know, I guess speaking from software or high tech and SaaS, right? Like, we have CRO roles. The rest of the world does not have CRO roles, right? Like, sure. there's no one person that is responsible for the customer engine, right? And so, uh, hopefully, like some of these lessons that we apply here can can be transferred over. But I, I having lived in. Uh, ERP and e-commerce land, you know, like those are just two very different machines, right? And like very exactly. few skill set to actually manage the whole stuff. And those that do end up at Apple, you know, <laughs> so, super. Okay. One thing, uh, another thing that we should talk about, right? Uh, as we like to wrap this thing up is, is the future, right? Like there are, we're going to be in an environment where the average age of the 
workforce coming in and the workforce that's already in is probably less than like 25 or 27 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And so those those people have learned about like sustainability and growth and, you know, this organic trend and stuff like that, right? And they want to work at companies like this, right? And so which actually creates a very interesting situation for uh, employee experience, right? And so any, like, are you seeing trends or like what are some of the employee experience folks that you're consulting with like have to say about this trend? That is a huge part of the value proposition, right? I think similar to what I was saying with the Gen Z purchasing and buying habits, right? When they're looking at an organization that they want to join, they do want to understand what the value proposition is. They do want to understand what the carbon footprint is. How are they actually you know, improving on that? What are their commitments? So I think it is becoming a huge part of the value proposition and being able to showcase that, hey, as a business, we're committed to this. We have scientifically based targets. We are moving and making progress against those targets. But on top of that, internally, here's the three, four different initiatives that we're doing. It is important to be able to engage your employees that way, right? If you talk about ESG, there's obviously a massive DEI part of it, but I'm only focusing on the sustainability element. Even if I look at us internally, we probably have thousands of employees that are engaged in office level green initiatives before green was a big thing. Right. And now we have probably more than 2000 uh, you know, consultants that are doing green projects for our clients. Wow. That's great. I mean, just thinking about like all the ways I know. I know we have all been working remotely for a couple of years. Right. And, and it's interesting. I mean, I'll testify like in my house, I'm super green, but not outside of my house. I may not be that green. Right. Yeah. And so but. Like we should take the things that we do at home to our workplace, and they actually take care of like all of the things that we have we have ac- ac- access to. Um, so I, I totally see this uh, uh, this conversation becoming a little bit more serious, even in like high tech and stuff. All the like like Silicon Valley is a little bit different, right? Like we are super <laughs> green here, but I don't know if all of tech is actually uh, is actually like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Super. All right. I know we've been chatting for this for on this topic for for a little bit, and uh, I hope the listeners actually understood like what does going green mean and why is it important and like what's the framework and between like carbon credits, carbon offsetting, and carbon cra- capture. Those are like the 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 things of that that you can use. Um, let's move to a slightly different section of the podcast. Right. Uh, we always ask people to share. Uh, a book, a blog, a newsletter, a website, or a video that that our listeners can like consume on this topic, or maybe on another topic that you think is pertinent for them. Um, so I'm gonna give you a few examples, which will highlight how fragmented my normal life is between parenting books and blogs, and you know the latest and greatest in B2B. I would probably say the two most recent things that I've read. One is actually Melinda Gates's Moment of Left which is, it's been a couple of years since she published it. But as you think through DEI parts of this, um, gender equality and empowerment, that was an incredibly well-written story of how empowering women actually lift societies, right? So that was one piece. I do, I am subscribed to Emily Oster's kind of the parents newsletter, which is very data-driven during this whole COVID time. That was actually super helpful for me. I would probably say the other piece that I'm trying to get smarter about is metaverse, actually. 
Right. It's uh, fascinating to see how B2C is leaning very intensely into it. B2B is yeah. not there yet. Yeah. Um, but we recently published a whole new research piece on metaverse. There's fascinating kind of McKinsey quarterly articles that are out there on how much value there is and how B2B is uh, needs to kind of catch up to it. Do you own a device that allows you to kind of log into the metaverse? I had one, but oh, the wow. other pieces, like that's the thing, it's how much can you usually make that accessible with just one device? Yes. So the idea of if you're able to go beyond the device and yes. bring it to handheld, et cetera, you will yep. be able to make it more accessible. Hence yep. why it will be a little bit more attractive. But yeah, I don't think I want to walk around with a headset on my head the entire day. <laughs> well, I, I think that the Google goggles, I think if you remember them, like like they looked a little, little slick with a little like yep. thing on them. But I, I will say, like, the, maybe the COVID and things like that actually accelerated some investment in this exactly. area so that people actually have an outlet. Otherwise, people are just, like, like they were following the rules for a bit, and then they're like, okay, it's fine. If I something happens to me, it happens to me. But I do, I am I going to go for a walk and stuff? And I might, I'm going to take my kids and dogs out, out and stuff. Exactly. Um, There's still something on the human interaction wow, that right, I right. You know, you carbon footprint stuff and then you're like look at the metaverse this is a very interesting person <laughs> all right tell you gotta us. keep things interesting i know i know this is great uh oh like i i've always said that it would be great if we can ever do this like live right like 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 i've been to uh, i've seen some shows where you have like four mics like coming around and people are just oh, yeah. actually having a conversation you know Hopefully one day we can do that with demand base. Uh, so we always ask people for like the names of three other individuals in the EV2B space that you recommend we bring on to the show. Because like same way that you came on the show, you helped us understand this new concept. And by virtue of what you share and what your what the people that you recommend share, everybody grows. So are there two or three people that you recommend we bring on to the show? I feel like you guys won't get McKinsey's out by this, but I think uh, one of my colleagues, Julia, is joining you guys in a few weeks. She's a fantastic kind of person to talk through some of the B2B kind of trends as well. Like I said, our metaverse team is, I think, would be fascinating given there's so much adoption in B2C, not so much yet in B2B. So Eric Hazen is one of the names. And I would say, as I think through our B2B buyer surveys you may have already had i think you already had liz harrison as one of your people but i would say anyone like jennifer stanley or candace lynn plotkin they're also fantastic speakers and they publish widely on b2b buying habits super and what would be the best way for people to get in touch with you after this podcast linkedin linkedin is where it is super well I have to be careful on LinkedIn now that, you know, if you put your phone number, you get all these like prank calls these days. And I'm like, what happened? You that know? is true. It's like, I started like screening a lot more. Really? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know how it's that happening. In the last six to eight weeks, like I have more like texts that say, hey. And I'm like, right? I don't you, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I was tempted once or twice and I'm like, I'm going to wait till the second line shows up. Because if the second line's not showing up, I'm not yeah. responding. It's not an idea. So, super. Well, Sanam, thank you so much for spending time with uh, with us on the show. And we hopefully will have you back at some point in time to get more of your research. But thank you for your time. And we wish you best of luck on your journey. Thank you so much, Asher. It was fantastic to have you, join you in your comeback show. Thank you. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. 
Demandbase's Smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demandbase TV. 